good evening. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 John, chapter 5. We're in 1 John, chapter 5, this evening. Verses 16 through 19, approaching the end of the book. 1 John, chapter 5. Verses 16 through 19 is our scripture text this evening. So 1 John chapter 5, starting in verse 16, going through verse 19, this is God's word. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give for him, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that you should make requests for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And there we'll stop the reading of God's word. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Father, we... We pray that you would enlighten our eyes to understand this text, to understand what the text means, to understand how it should be applied in our lives. Lord, we pray that we would be humble before you and have teachable hearts, that we have open ears to your word, and that we would grow uh, in our understanding and knowledge of you. We pray for your blessing uh, during this time this evening. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this evening's, this evening's sermon is really an application of the sermon from our last time together in 1 John, which was a sermon and a text on prayer and praying according to God's will. If you'll just look at the two verses before the ones we just read, verses 14 and 15, John said this, This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. So what we had then was a, a text in a sermon on prayer, and what we have is an application of that that John gives to us in this text this evening. We saw uh, in that text and in that sermon last time that we should not pray for things that are against God's will. We also saw that when we pray for something and God has not promised to answer that prayer one way or another, that he will answer either with a yes or a no, and either way, that answer is for our good. And we also saw that when we pray for something and God has promised to answer in a certain way, that he will answer it in that way, although he'll answer it in his own timing, and oftentimes we'll have to ask many times so we will learn dependence upon him. So we saw the issue of praying according to God's will and how we should pray. Now what we have in our passage this evening is an application of praying for something where God has promised to respond in a certain way. We're praying according to God's will. That's one of the things that John brings up in this passage. And, which is particularly, that we're praying for the forgiveness of other Christians' sins. That's something that God wants us to pray for. But interestingly, and maybe quite unexpectedly, we have in our text this evening instruction not to pray for someone who has sinned 
in a certain way. So we're going to have to look at both of these things, these things of the sin not leading to death and the sin unto death. So we're going to look at those each in their own turn. But first, let's look at what we should pray for. So look at verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. So the first thing that I'm sure we're all wondering is, what is this sin not leading to death? Now, we'll be exploring this really throughout the sermon and comparing that to the sin that is unto death, but this is what the sin not leading to death is. This is a sin that a Christian commits, but then repents of and is restored to peaceful fellowship. This is a sin where a Christian wanders off but comes back and is forgiven. Elsewhere in Scripture, God speaks of sins that Christians commit, and they're straying, but then they're restored to peaceful fellowship. For example, God speaks of this in general in Galatians 6, verse 1. It says, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you will not too be tempted. So there's someone who is a Christian who's straying, but they're restored. Likewise, James 5, 19 and 20. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So there's a Christian who strays, but comes back. He's forgiven. We even see specific examples of this in Scripture. Sins not leading to death can be very, very serious sins. For example, like the man in 1 Corinthians who needed to be excommunicated for his sexual immorality. His sin went so far that he did end up getting excommunicated. However, in 2 Corinthians, Paul urges them to restore him because he had repented. So although he sinned and was in error and even was excommunicated, he was restored. That was a sin not leading to death, although a very serious sin. So sin not leading to death is sin that a Christian commits and which God forgives. So John urges us here in this text to pray for such a person, that God would forgive them. So when a Christian commits sin not leading to death, we can be assured it is the will of God that he will forgive them. Why? Because they are one of his own. They are a believer. We saw there in that text right before this on prayer. This is the confidence which we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And this is according to his will that God forgives his people of their sins. We know that he hears us and whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. So forgiveness of a Christian's sin is the will of God. And we know that, for example, from 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So when you see a Christian sin and they're a true Christian, it is the will of God that he forgive them. So when you pray that, you know he will forgive them. He has promised such. So here in, in 1 John uh, 5, 16, he says this brother who commits this sin not leading to death, he's saying that he'll be forgiven. It says that God will, quote, give him life, which means that God will forgive him and preserve him in the salvation which he has, just as he has promised. 
He promises that all over the place. But for example, John 6, 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. So when the brother sins, God won't cast him out. He'll forgive him, and you pray for that forgiveness. And that prayer is according to the will of God, and you can rest assured we have that request when we ask for it. So the main takeaway from this verse, this section of this verse, is that we, when we see a brother in sin, we should pray for God to forgive them. That, that's the main, we don't want to miss that, because I know we're all concerned about what the sin unto death is, but the text is saying we need to pray for those brothers we see who are sinning, who are straying. We know that those prayers are according to the will of God, and if someone truly is a Christian, God has promised to forgive them. So, when you see a brother or a sister sinning in some way, when you notice a bad habit growing in their lives, we don't gossip about that. We don't call them names in our heads. Instead, we say, I need to pray for them. I need to pray for them, for God to forgive them, and, of course, for them to repent, to confess that sin to God. God wants us to pray for each other whenever we sin. That's the point. And God will always answer that prayer when a true born-again believer is in sin. God will forgive them because he is, that person is his child. He will preserve his people. He will not let, he will not, no one, none, none of God's people will lose their salvation, of course. He promises to preserve them. So even when they're in sin, he will forgive them. He will bring them to repentance. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't go and talk to the person who is in sin. Some of those passages I read earlier said to do so. But it does mean we should not leave out the important duty to pray for one another when we're in sin. We know that if somebody is a true Christian, they will eventually repent if they live long enough to do so. And if they don't live very long after they are in sin, a true Christian is nevertheless still forgiven by God because of his promise, because of what Jesus has done on the cross. God will forgive his people. He'll bring them to repentance if they live long enough to do so because he loves us enough to discipline us and to bring us back onto the right path. That's what God does as our Father, and we should be praying for such things for our brothers when we see them in sin. He wants us to pray for them, that, that he would preserve them in the Christian faith, that he would forgive them for all of their sins, which are not sins unto death, as we'll see in a minute. So in order for us to understand this, that the takeaway is, of course, pray for brothers who are in sin, but to understand that phrase, sin not leading to death, we also need to understand the contrast, the sin that is unto death, which John brings up here right afterwards. So he tells us not only is there sin that does not lead to death, which are sins that Christians commit but then are forgiven of, he tells us that there are sins unto death. And we get the opposite instruction, you should not pray for a person who has committed a sin unto death. So what is this all about? Let's look at the, the verses 16 and 17 together. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests for this. All unrighteousness is sin and there is sin not leading to death. So the contrast is rather straightforward. For those who are sinning uh, that have a sin that's not leading to death, we should pray for them. For those who have a sin unto death, we should not pray for them. So there's a, quite, a, quite a big distinction between these two things. So what is this sin 
unto death. Well, as you imagine, there are a few different views that commentators take, but I think that the one that I'll present to you this evening makes the most sense not only in the light of the context of 1 John, but also in light of the context of the rest of the New Testament. So what's the sin unto death? Well, first of all, I want to say this. The sin unto death is a sin that we can identify. In other words, we can recognize it. We can know if somebody has committed the sin unto death. Even if sometimes it might be hard to tell, we can know. And I know that we can know because we have an instruction. We have to make a decision based upon whether or not someone's committed that sin. In other words, if, someone, if we can recognize that someone's committed the sin unto death, we're not supposed to pray for them. So I can know that we know that we can know if someone has committed the sin because John tells us to make the decision not to pray for such a person who has committed this sin. If we couldn't know what the sin unto death looks like, then we couldn't make the decision to not pray for them, as, as peculiar as that may sound to our ears. So what exactly is the sin? We can identify it, but what is it? So John tells us two things here in this passage that will help us identify it. The first is there is a distinction between sin that does not lead to death and sin that is unto death. So he says all unrighteousness is sin and there is sin not leading to death. So we see this distinction between these two categories. Secondly, he says we should only pray for those who have sinned not leading to death, but we should not pray for those who have sinned unto death. And of course, that's the most uh, interesting and peculiar thing about the text. Why, why shouldn't we pray for a person who has committed the sin unto death? What is this sin that's, that's so special in its own category that we should not pray for a person who has committed it? Now, the answer is this, and it may sound surprising. We should not pray for the forgiveness of a person who has committed the sin unto death because such a person will not be forgiven by God. And that's the reason why. God will not forgive this person, so we should not pray for them. There's no point. John tells us that God will forgive those who commit sin not leading to death, so we should pray for them, but for those who sin unto death, the implication is that God will not forgive them. He will not give them life, and there's no point in praying for such a person. Now, that's especially interesting. What's especially interesting is in this context, John appears to be speaking of those inside the visible church. He speaks of the brother, in the beginning of verse 16, committing a sin not leading to death. And then he doesn't say particularly it's a brother committing the sin unto death, but by context it seems to imply that he's still talking about people within the church. Now, in the book of 1 John, the term brother doesn't always mean a true born-again believer. It just means somebody in the ranks of the visible church. Uh, for example, in 1 John 2.9, he says, The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. Well, John's describing an unbeliever there, someone who's in the darkness, but he calls Christians his brother. So that person who calls Christians his brother, he's a professing Christian, but he's not born again. So John may use the term brother referring to a professing Christian, but not necessarily a true born-again Christian. Such a person calls a Christian his brother, but it, his, that Christian is not truly his brother because that person is not an adopted child of God. That person's a false brother. 
So what we have here with the sin unto death is a church member, a professing Christian, committing the sin unto death, which means that God will not forgive this person, and it's also evidence that they are not, in fact, born again at all. So what is this then? What sin can a professing Christian church member commit that not only proves that they are not born again, but also is such a sin that God will not forgive them, so there's no point in praying that he would? It's such a sin that shows that they are a reprobate and that they will not be saved. What sin fits that description? So all of this, all of these considerations lead us to the conclusion that the sin unto death is what we call irreversible apostasy. Irreversible apostasy. What is that? What is irreversible apostasy? Listen to this. Irreversible apostasy is when a professing Christian who intellectually understands the true gospel consciously rejects it later on and abandons the faith that they once professed. Let me say that again. Irreversible apostasy is when a professing Christian who intellectually understands the truth of the gospel consciously rejects it later on and abandons the faith that they once professed. Now, irreversible apostasy is described in the book of Hebrews. And we're going to turn there. Hebrews 6, 46. I want you to turn there. This is, this is big Bible study here. One of the toughest verses in 1 John and then cross-reference to one of the toughest verses in Hebrews. But we've got to go here to understand this. Hebrews 6, 4-6. I want you to turn there. Crucial text. Understanding the connection to the sin unto death. And while you're turning there, I just want to say this. Before we get into that text, apostasy, falling away, abandoning the faith, that's not losing your salvation. I'm sure you understand that, but I got to say that as clearly as I can. Apostasy or falling away is not losing your salvation. One who truly profess, or excuse me, one who truly possesses eternal life, they cannot lose it. Otherwise, it wouldn't be eternal life. It'd be temporary life. Those who are born again cannot become unborn again. God would be failing and saving that person, and God does not fail. Apostasy is not losing your salvation. Apostasy is being a professing Christian, a Christian in name only, and then denying the faith you once professed. You're a person, the apostate is a person who has called themselves a Christian, but was never really born again. They never really were saved in the first place. In fact, John had described this in 1 John 2.19, describing apostates. He says, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are not all of us. You see that? He's saying, if they really were Christians, they would have stuck with us and stuck with the truth. But they never were Christians. And they showed that by abandoning the faith. So apostasy, what's being described in the sin unto death and what's being described here in Hebrews 6, it's not a true believer losing their salvation as a fake believer uh, abandoning the thing they professed. So looking at Hebrews 6, describing someone who truly understands the doctrines of the Christian faith and profess to believe it and then abandon it. Look at Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit 
and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. So just looking at some of those phrases, he says they're enlightened. That is, these people have been taught and intellectually understand the truth, the real gospel, the true gospel, not some false cult thing, but they really have grasped in their mind the teachings of the gospel. But they haven't truly believed in Jesus as their Savior. He says they have, they've had a taste of the heavenly gift. That is, they've, they've tasted Jesus as he's offered in the gospel, but they have not believed in him. They haven't spiritually fed on him. They've just had a little taste. It's like a, a wine tasting where they give you a little bit of wine and you swish it in your mouth and you spit it back in the bucket. That's what these people do with Jesus. They have a little taste of that, but they never feed upon him spiritually. They don't truly know him. It says they've been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. That is, in, in that they've had fellowship in the visible church, yet they were not really indwelt by the Holy Spirit. They had a taste of the good news of the gospel. They had a taste of the promise of heaven that it contains, but their profession of faith was only temporary. It wasn't real. It wasn't lasting. There was no real fruit because there was no real root. So these are people who, who really are grasping it intellectually, professing it, but it's not real. It's not genuine. So Hebrews 6.6 6 says, After all that, after all that intellectual understanding and being part of the visible church and all of that, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucified themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. So again, this is someone who truly understands the Christian faith. They profess it. They're a member of the church, but then they abandon it. They fall away. They apostatize. So the author of Hebrews says about such a person and that, that particular person that it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. That is, it's, it's impossible for them to come back to the Christian faith once they've professed it and denied it. Now, that word impossible really does mean impossible. It really does. That, that word is used three other places in the book of Hebrews, and you probably know some of these verses. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That means it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Another one, it's impossible for God to lie. It actually is impossible for him to lie. It's a, it, without faith, it's impossible to please him. See, all that, the word impossible is emphatic in all three of those, and here's the fourth usage. It's impossible to renew them again to repentance. It doesn't mean unlikely or improbable. It means impossible. It's impossible for this, this sort of apostate to return after they have fallen away. Now, I want to be extremely clear here because you may have things swishing around in your head. Not everyone who leaves the church is an irreversible apostate. You need to understand that. The author of Hebrews lists all of those qualifications, you know, once being enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, all those things, to make a very important point. The person who will never come back from abandoning the, the church is one who did truly understand the faith and then consciously rejects it. And those are very important things. He really did understand the truth, and then he consciously says that is all wrong later on. 
this is not a person then, for example, who, who grew up in the church, never really understood the Christian faith, and then left the church as a young adult. And then lo and behold, when they're 25, they are born again, and they come back to the church. See, that's not what's being described here in Hebrews 6. That, that's a person who never really understood the faith, and then later on they did understand the faith. But the apostate in Hebrews 6 is someone, he tries to list everything he can to say, this person was as, as close to being a real Christian as you can be and still be a fake Christian. He really intellectually understood it and then consciously rejects that truth. Someone who, additionally, someone who professes faith but, ex, but is excommunicated because of some sin is not an irreversible apostate either. For example, that man in 1 Corinthians who was ensnared himself in sexual immorality, he was able to repent and be restored. That's not what's being described here. That's not a man who consciously said, Jesus is not the Savior. It's a man who ensnared himself in sin and went off, but then repented of that and was able to be restored. Irreversible apostasy is the conscious rejection of Christ after you had previously professed the true faith with a good understanding of it. That's why Hebrews 6, 6 says, and when it says, they have then have fallen away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. That's a conscious rejection of Jesus as the Savior. In other words, the apostate's view of Jesus was earlier that Jesus was the Savior. Now he's gone back to saying that Jesus is not the Savior. The apostate falls away and takes the position that those unbelieving Jews took when they said, crucify him, crucify him. They said Jesus was a blasphemer, a false Christ. They denied that Jesus was the Savior, and they crucified him. The apostate does the same thing. They deny that Jesus is the Savior, and they would crucify him too, given the chance. See, Hebrews, it's actually a running theme. This issue of apostasy is a theme in the book, and he talks about the same issue in Hebrews 10, verse 28 to 29, he says, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace? Talking about the same type of person as in Hebrews 6, the apostate has trampled underfoot the Son of God by rejecting the truth that he once professed and understood. He has regarded Jesus' blood. Once he said Jesus' blood was my only hope of salvation, now he says Jesus' blood means nothing. You see the difference? He has trampled underfoot Jesus. He has called his blood common and unclean, insignificant. He has taken the position, again, that the unbelieving Jews took. This is no savior. That's what the apostate has taken, after once professing faith, now rejects it. They've insulted the Holy Spirit by denying the truth that the Holy Spirit bears witness to, which is Jesus is the Christ. Such a person who has consciously understood the gospel, professed faith in it, and then consciously later on says that Christ is not the Savior, Hebrews says it's impossible for them to come to the Christian faith. It's impossible. And to be clear, it's impossible not because they really wanted to come back and God won't let them. It's impossible because they will never want to come back. Their irreversible apostasy is evidence that God will not regenerate them. It's evidence that they are left in their sins. 
Very, very serious and stirring passages these are. So the irreversible apostate is a very specific category of person. Uh, this person is one who truly intellectually understood the gospel. They professed faith in Christ. They were a part of the church. And then they consciously reject that Jesus is the Savior. They consciously say he is not the Savior that I used to say he was. And that is the sin unto death that John is referring to. So doesn't it make sense then that John would say, you shouldn't pray for such a person? Why? Because of what Hebrews says, it's impossible for them to come back. There's no point in praying for such a person who has committed that sin. They will not come to repentance. God will not give them life. For every other sin we see a professing Christian commit, John says pray for them. Pray for them. Even and especially if they're excommunicated for their sins, like the man from Corinth. Pray for them. But for this specific sin unto death, this irreversible apostasy that's described in Hebrews, John says don't pray for that. In the context of 1 John, you remember that there was the issue of those early Gnostic teachers who had once professed faith in the gospel and then abandoned that for false gospel. Apparently, that's what John was referring to here, that these people had committed that sin unto death. Remember, earlier in the book, he calls them antichrists. That is, they are now opposed to Jesus. They consciously repudiate the gospel they once professed. Remember 1 John 2, 18 and 19. He says, children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that antichrist is coming, even now many antichrists have appeared. Those are those false teachers. Many antichrists have appeared from this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us. Those antichrists went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are not all of us. You see that? They are apostates. Those, those false teachers, they once professed the true Christ, and now they consciously reject him for the fake Gnostic Jesus. So the sin unto death is a very specific sin. It's very specific but it does happen. And the warnings against it, as you can see, are very serious. So additionally, besides that context that I think really points us in this direction, the context of this very passage in 1 John chapter 5 also supports this interpretation that the sin unto death is irreversible apostasy. Because what John immediately launches into after this verse is contrasting the true believer being preserved by God and not losing his salvation. So look at, look at verse 18 and 19, 1 John 5, 18 and 19. We know that no one who was born of God sins, but he, who was born, but he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So here we have John reassure us concerning what a true believer looks like. In this context, it appears that John's saying that no one, when he says that no one born of God sins, he's referring to them not sinning the sin unto death or either not sinning and not living a life of habitual sin, which he's talked about earlier in the book. He's saying, but the one who was born of God keeps them. That refers to Jesus. So he's saying those who are true believers who are born of God, Jesus preserves us. We will not lose our salvation. We will be preserved in eternal life even when we sin. As Jesus said, he will lose none of all that the Father has given to him. 
So those who are born of God are kept by God, loved by God, forgiven by God. Nothing can separate the child of God from his Father in heaven. You recall Romans 8, 38, 39. I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. God's children are forever his, and no one can take them from him. You recall in John's gospel, Jesus said that in John 10, 28, I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So we have here in 1 John, the one who was born of God keeps him. That is Jesus, the begotten of God, he keeps us. He, he protects us. He holds on to us. He gives us that eternal life. He preserves them in salvation. And it says, and the evil one does not touch him. He's saying, Satan cannot touch true believers. That does not mean he cannot tempt us or hinder us, because he certainly can. But it means that Satan can never have us back into his family. He will never take us back into his kingdom. True believers will never return to having Satan as their father. We have God as our father now. Satan will never be our father again. Although Satan may want that, Jesus, God the Father, will never let that happen. That's what John is saying here. The true believer cannot commit the sin unto death. The true believer cannot commit irreversible apostasy. God keeps him from doing so by his grace. Satan can tempt us to abandon the faith, but true believers will not reject Jesus ultimately. God will keep them forever. He will preserve them. Jesus will not lose any of his people. If someone goes apostate, it shows that they were never really part of God's family in the first place. As John said, if they went out from us, if they're really of us, they would have stayed with us. But so it may be shown that they're not of us, they went out from us. Only false Christians go apostate. True ones never will. The contrast between the believer and the world is also stated clearly here in 1 John 5, 19. He says, we know that we're of God and the whole world lies on the power of the evil one. So we have those two families. True Christians are of God. They're born again. They have God as their father. They're part of God's family. The world, including fake Christians who are indeed just part of the world, they have Satan as their father, as John has taught earlier in the book. He's not a true believer. Those fake Christians are not true believers. They're just part of the world. The whole unbelieving world lies in the power of Satan and in his kingdom and his family. But those who are saved are of God and his family. And God will not lose any of them. So as we come to a conclusion here this evening, why is it that we have warnings against apostasy given to churches in the Bible when a true believer cannot and will never apostatize? Why do, why do these apostles write letters warning people in the church about this if true believers cannot apostatize? How should you and me, us as professing Christians, respond to the Bible's warnings against apostasy? I just want to say this first. It's a foolish attitude to say this. You should not say, 
Well, all these warnings against apostasy, they're totally irrelevant to me because I'm saved and, and God will preserve me until the end, so I have nothing to worry about. Now, these warnings are given for us to consider. Every professing Christian should think about these things. That includes you and me. A wise attitude would say this, I need to take these warnings seriously so that I'm not self-deceived into presuming I'm saved when I'm not truly saved. See, that's what the book of 1 John has been about, hasn't it? To see whether or not, to know whether or not we are saved. The irony in that is that a true convert will be the one who takes these warnings most seriously, while the false convert will probably discount these warnings. True converts ultimately never apostatize because God preserves them. When they stray into sin, God convicts them of their sin. He will not let them fall away, and he will always forgive them. Because the true believer is always committing sin, not leading to death. God will bring them to repentance. So a true convert, the true convert even may not take these warnings against apostasy seriously in a certain point in their life, but eventually they will. So if you've never taken these warnings against apostasy seriously, I'm not saying that proves you're not a believer. I'm saying that we should start taking these warnings seriously. These warnings are here to help us, and they're here, they're God's means of preserving us. They're warnings for us to to sure up ourselves and to look at ourselves and to examine whether or not we're in the faith. The author of Hebrews emphasizes the danger of apostasy so many times in that book that, again, it's actually one of the running themes of the book. He encourages Christians in his writings to keep on believing, to keep on believing, to hold fast to the confession of Christ. So we can have these warnings and these, these calls to keep on believing, and at the same time, be resting in the, in the preserving grace of God that keeps us forever. So we can take the warnings against apostasy and examine ourselves, but remember what the book of 1 John is about, 1 John 5, 13. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. So warnings against apostasy are not at all against having assurance. They're just calls to look and make sure you, you are saved. They're calls for you to examine and see if you should have assurance, to look at the tests of 1 John and say, am I really saved? Those calls, uh, those warnings against apostasy should make us examine ourselves, in other words. So it's the balance of taking seriously that call to keep on believing and then resting in, in the preserving grace of God. So it's not an either or, it's a both and. We know that God will keep us if we are born again. He has promised to do so. Yet some in the church, some in the visible church, may commit apostasy and we may never see them again. That's a reality too. But for those who are truly God's, those who are truly born again, he will keep them. And Satan will not touch them, as it says. They will never commit the sin unto death. Their sins will only lead not unto death, as John puts it. We're protected under God's wings as true believers. So nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So true Christians, we commit the sins not leading to death, and God forgives us. And we should pray for one another when we see each other's sin. But for those specific people who truly intellectually understand the gospel and then consciously reject it later on, John says you shouldn't pray for them because it's impossible for them to come back anyway. But then John reassures us that for those who are born of God, who are really saved, Jesus keeps us. He will never lose us. 
because, as Paul put it, nothing, nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for these, these stirring texts of Scripture. Where at the same time, they're warnings and fearful warnings. We, we see that word impossible, possible to come back, and it should strike some fear in our hearts. But yet, Lord, at the same time, those warnings call us to look and see at the grace that you've done in our lives, how you've changed us. They call us to look to Jesus and his finished work on the cross and to rest, knowing that we have eternal life, but yet always renewing that examination of ourselves so we can grow in assurance. Lord, I pray that we would maintain this, this balance that you teach us in, the, in your word, that, the, that your true believers would have peace knowing they are yours, and that those who, are, those who are not true believers, that you would use this to make them examine themselves, that they would recognize they have not yet been born again, and that they would call upon you, and that you would save them. Lord, we pray for wisdom as we try to apply this challenging text to, to our lives, to real life. We just pray that you will help us to be wise and understanding, and that you would just give us grace. Lord, I pray for the peace and joy that comes from having assurance and that all your true people would have that. And we thank you, Lord, for your promise of keeping and preserving us that we know that you will never lose any of the people you have truly saved. What a great promise, and we know you are mighty to save in that way as so we praise you in Jesus' name.